0: Lord, that we would be changed by it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, give us the understanding of, of what we need to take away today. And Lord, I pray that you would apply this to our hearts. Oh, God, we, we need your grace to walk in submission to these truths. And Lord, I, we just ask you, God, to do what we can't do. We pray that you be glorified as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. This morning, we are going to be looking at endurance, the question of perseverance. The title this morning is Consider Jesus the Key to Faithful Perseverance. Consider Jesus the key to faithful perseverance. I uh, I love this time of year um, for a lot of reasons, but I don't know if you like basketball, but this is a fun time to watch basketball, and uh, I love the first round of the NCAA tournament more than any other part of it. And so uh, it's a great thing. I mean, I mean, is there anything better than watching basketball from noon till midnight? It's it's amazing. It's just absolutely one of the greatest things there ever was. And uh, I used to could do that. I can't do that now, but but there was a time that I would watch every game that there was. And last night I was watching uh, about 10 o'clock. I was watching Abilene Christian in Texas. And me and Luke were watching it while Will was asleep. And, And it was just getting so dramatic. I mean, here you got a school that became Division I in 2013. And now they are playing the flagship school of the state, and they are in it. And, and, and there was three minutes to go, and I looked at Luke, and I was like, can they hold on? Can they just get this thing done? Can they hold on to it? And I was like, I don't think they can do it. I don't think they can do it. And they're up four with two minutes to go, and it was painful. They traveled. And they were going to get fouled there, about a minute and a half left. And, and, and I'm like, they're blowing it. They're blowing it. And we were just pulling for them so hard, and it was dramatic, and they won in the last two seconds, and they beat Texas. And it was crazy because the whole ending of that, all I thought about was, can they finish? Can they just hold on? All the way to the end. They've, they've come out of the gate really strong, but can they finish? You see, when we think about the Christian life, we need to be thinking about endurance. Because those who are truly in Christ will endure They will persevere to the end. And God's word is filled with exhortation and admonition as to how we can deal with the difficulties of life. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of suffering, persecuted Christians, and they are tempted to go back to Judaism. I got a question for you this morning, maybe to personalize this context. If you were told tomorrow morning, that if you attended services here on, at all, that you would be in a different tax bracket, that you immediately would pay 20% more of your income. I wonder how many of you would be tempted to go back to online services. You know, it's funny how that hits us, doesn't it? We all think about that and we go, whoa. What if you were told today that if you were openly professing the faith that your kids would not have access to school. They wouldn't have access to college. All of a sudden, things begin to change because these people that had their property plundered, they were even facing the prospect of death, and now they're tempted to go back into Judaism because the disdain and the persecution that Christianity brought was not happening to Judaism in their day, and they're tempted to forsake Christ and go back to the ways of Moses, to go back to the ways of the temple, to go back into Judaism. And and the author of Hebrew writes these beloved brothers, and he calls them to consider Jesus. How can we faithfully persevere? What we're going to see... Over and over emphasized, it's only mentioned once, but we're going to see it just echo in the verses that we're going to look at is that his call for them to finish well, his call for them to endure until the end, is to consider Christ. Consider Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at four reasons why we should consider Jesus. Four reasons why we should consider Christ. The first one, consider Jesus. He has sanctified and called you. He has sanctified and called you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers. Therefore, holy brothers. And we finished off looking last time at the necessity of the humanity of Jesus Christ. The necessity of the humanity of Jesus. And he finishes this incredible passage out and he hits it home, and he wants them to understand, look at what Christ has accomplished for you. And isn't that what we need to be reminded of today? We need to be reminded of eternal truth because we come in here with minds filled up with a lot of different things. We need to be reminded, look at what God has done. And he finishes verse 17 and verse 18 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then he comes in into chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We start out and consider Jesus, he has sanctified and called you. He's called and sanctified you. And what does he say? Therefore, holy brothers. I wonder today if you feel like a holy brother or a holy sister in the Lord. You may be thinking, I'm just glad I got here this morning. It was crazy. Maybe it was one of those mornings where it just wasn't good in the car and the only reason you're getting along with your family right now is because y'all are quiet. And here you are, and you're convicted because you're thinking, wow, and the last thing on the planet that you feel like is a reference of holy. And what does he mean, holy, set apart? You see, when we look at this, he's calling them back to their identity and their calling. If people are tempted to to go off the track to drift, what better way as he started chapter two? And what did he say at the beginning of chapter two? Pay close attention to the things you have heard and pay close attention to who Jesus is. And now he does something similar, but he calls them back to their identity. He calls them to their calling. He says, Look, you are holy in Christ. You're holy. You think, what, what does that mean? Well, it's fascinating because if we were to go to Ephesians chapter one, you would see the same word that he uses here for the word holy in the way that Paul uses it to use the word saint, same word. When Paul says to the saints who are at Ephesus, he uses the same Greek word. And, And you think, why? What is that all about? Well, when we are saved, we are sanctified. We are set apart. We are now different because of the new creation we are in Christ. And because we are set apart, we are put on a progressive way of growth in Jesus. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, look what he says. He says in verse 11, for he who sanctifies, he who sets apart, he who literally enables us to be holy, he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified. This morning, if you're a Christian, you can be confident that you've been sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, he was He offered himself up as a sacrifice in order that we might be sanctified. And now the author of Hebrews is like, look, therefore, holy brothers. What a, what a reminder, because immediately it shows us this heavenly calling, this, this unique way that God has set us apart. We're set apart. We're family. Holy Brothers, you know one of the things that if we want to walk and grow in Christ Jesus, we can't neglect the family of god it's it's I can tell you this I would love to hear it, but I 've not met many Christians who ever grew in Christ Jesus in isolation from the body of christ and, and and if you go back and say, "When have I grown the most in christ jesus it's it's no mistake that Those answers are so often tied to being involved in the body of Christ because we are brothers. We are brothers and sisters because of what Christ Jesus has done. And look what he does. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I don't know about you, but when I am suffering or and I am feeling overwhelmed and there's any type of despair, It's not because I'm looking at God's word and I'm looking in the long view of what God has promised. It's because I'm looking straight down in my situation and I've got blinders on. Can you relate? You see, he's saying, look, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I love this because they are partakers of a heavenly calling. You know, when we come together and we take the Lord's Supper, as we will do on Easter morning, we, take, we are partakers of the bread and the cup, and we partake of the bread and the cup because we are partakers of a heavenly calling. That's why we come together as a family, because God has shown his grace to us. And what a great way to start this, this passage because the author is saying, look, understand who you are. Understand what God has called you to. I was looking at some passages all through the New Testament or verse after verse about the calling of God. It's a heavenly calling. You see it in Paul's writings over and over. Remember in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, a heavenly calling. In the here and now, there's going to be suffering. But in God's word, we are reminded of the promise of what is to come, we're reminded of the reality that Christ is in us, of the calling of how it affects us not only in our day-to-day life as Christians, but what we have to look forward to. And he writes these suffering believers that are persecuted, and he says, look, your holy brothers, you're partakers of a heavenly calling. This is something that God uses to change and challenge his people, to be reminded of who they are. But then he uses the term that we're really focusing on this morning. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. What in the world does that mean, consider Jesus? The word consider is to think. It's intense focus, intense contemplation. Holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, focus intently on Christ. Focus and gaze upon Jesus. You say, why? What's going on here? Because what is the book of Hebrews all about? It's about the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is greater. Writing to these Jews, he says, look, Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. We're going to see today he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the priest. He's greater than all of it. Any symbol, any shadow that you want to bring to the table, Christ is greater. Christ is greater. And today what we have to be reminded of is brothers and sisters who partake of a heavenly calling, I wonder, again, is that something that's so foreign to you? We live and we go through this life, and so often we are so distracted and we fall prey to what Paul says in Romans 12, where he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into a mold. Don't get so confused by the world system that you lose sight of God realities you lose sight of who you are. You lose sight of what you're living for. You lose sight of perspective. I wonder today if some of you are here and you're thinking, wow, I've lost perspective. I'm overwhelmed with the temporal. I'm overwhelmed with health. I'm overwhelmed with circumstances. I'm overwhelmed with suffering. I'm overwhelmed with persecution. Consider Christ. Gaze upon Jesus. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, one of the ways that God accomplishes the heart of what he's calling us to do here is not only through the preaching of his word, but through meditation upon the scripture. Because God has revealed himself to us through his word. And what better timing for him to mention this, again, chapter 2, pay close attention. You get the same idea. Gaze into it. Don't forget it. Don't lose sight of who Christ is. And now he says, look, consider Christ. Consider Christ. It's a command here in every circumstance. And he wants them to understand this, even in their persecution I was going back and I was looking at some of my notes my father had on this passage and I think he nailed it. He, he said, look, he's saying that before they make any decision, before they react to any situation, before they say something they regret, consider Christ. You know, it's, it's this, it's before you even think about saying those words that would tear down your brother or sister, consider Christ. Before you even think about blaming God for your circumstance, consider Christ. Before you even think about reacting to someone who has mistreated you, consider Christ. Before you dishonor your convictions by disgusting behavior, consider Christ. And he's given him this overwhelming list and overwhelming truths of who Jesus Christ is. I like what one commentator said. The reason so many Christians are weak and worried is that they do not keep considering Christ. And so his full strength and comfort and guidance are not theirs. The Holy Spirit continually says to every believer, consider Jesus. When life gets rough and problems seem to have no solution and everything goes bad and disappointment and depression become normal and temptations seem impossible to resist, put your gaze on Jesus and keep it there intently until he begins to unfold before your very eyes all his glorious power. Consider Jesus, he's called and sanctify you. But second of all this morning, consider Jesus, he is the great apostle and high priest. Now now this is fascinating because nowhere in the Bible is Jesus referred to as an apostle. Nowhere in the scripture. And here he says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest priest of our confession what is an apostle if if someone was an apostle it means they were sent out we know of the specific apostles in the new testament age that are unlike any other apostles and you know where i stand on that i don't think there's any modern day apostles in the same token and nature of the apostles in the bible but what we see here is is they were sent out. So in a generic sense, an apostle is sent out with a message. Now this gets exciting because you know what happens? We see that Jesus was sent out with a message. We'll look at some verses in a moment, but then he says, "Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest." Now I'll tell you, I would love for you to come today at four o'clock. What we're going to be talking about are the offices of Christ. Last week, Jesus is the greater prophet. Tonight, we're looking at his office as priest, his office as king. And one of the things that we began to see last week is that the priest would do what? He would offer sacrifices, prayers, and praises to God on behalf of the people. And what is he telling them? He's saying Jesus Christ is better than any way of Judaism because Christ is the greater priest. He is our high priest. What did we read at the beginning? You know, back in 17 and 18, he took on like things. He took on flesh and blood. He became like us to be our brother, to be our one that identified with us. And what did he do? He went to the cross. You remember John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, And he's coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now think about it. The high priest in the Old Testament would offer up the animal on behalf of the people. Jesus Christ becomes the Lamb of God for us. And he comes to take our place. He is our propitiation. He takes our sin upon himself. And so here he says, look, he is the apostle. He is the priest, the high priest. He offers perfect sacrifices. He continually brings us near to God. He continually prays for us. You see, the context here is important because what he does in verses one through six is he's going to really establish not only this call to persevere and endure, but he really focuses a large part of this on the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was sent by God. Moses was a unique figure in the life and the history of Israel. And we have to understand this because even in the time of the gospels, what happened was they didn't understand. They didn't understand who Moses was in relationship to Christ. We could look at different verses. Uh, You know, one thing that shows the significance and the uniqueness of Moses in the history of the life of Israel is Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now notice the next verse. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land. He was unique to the point to where Jesus had to deal with the Pharisees and their misunderstanding of the role of Moses. And John, Jesus says some harsh words. But what does he say? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. They looked at Moses as the great messenger of God. And then they misunderstood his role. They misunderstood Christ. They saw Moses and they looked at Christ and rejected Christ. And Jesus in turn says, you're rejecting me. And guess what? The one you love and the one you revere is the one who accuses you. We see in John chapter 9. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They were proud of that. We're disciples of Moses. And, you know, I was looking at Kent Hughes here. He mentions a lot of different reasons because sometimes, you know, as non-Jewish people, as Gentiles, those that have now become Christians, we look at this and we just don't understand some of the nature of how the Jew would have understood Moses. Well, he was a unique man. He was divinely chosen for his task, he says. He became a deliverer unlike any in the Old Testament, unparalleled display of power. Think about the plagues. Think about all the things that Moses was used by God as a deliverer through the sovereign hand of God. And the people looked up to him. He served as Israel's greatest prophet. And again, we'll come back to it later, but don't let what Andrew read to you earlier escape you at this point. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said, there's a prophet who is going to come who is greater than me. And we'll see this later, but I'm jumping the gun, but it's so exciting. Do you realize when you read the gospels and you're reading the gospels and the people say, is this the prophet? You know what they're talking about? Deuteronomy 18. Is this the one Moses spoke about? Is this the one that has come? You see, they misunderstood Moses. They knew that he was used by God. He was a deliverer. They knew that he was uniquely great because God had called him to this. Numbers chapter 12. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Remember that, that's gonna come up again. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? What an amazing passage. All of these things. He was the lawgiver. He was the historian. I mean, we we call the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And and we we know that Moses was the author that God used. He was the one who wrote. And we see he was the great historian. He was humble. I mean, all many, many, many things. But Moses was sent by God with the message from God. I, I was looking at different things about this. And about his role. I mean, even in in many of the ways that we see, Aaron was the high priest, but think about this. Moses sprinkled the blood of the covenant on the altar and on the people in Exodus 24. In in Leviticus 8, he anointed them with oil. Um, he, He consecrated Aaron and his sons offering sacrifices, applying the blood to the altar. And so in some ways, The people saw Moses uniquely as an apostle, messenger, and as a priest. But what is he doing here? The author of Hebrews is very clear. He wants these people that are tempted to go back to Judaism to understand not only their identity, not only their calling, but he wants them to see that Christ is the greater apostle. He's the greater high priest. You see, just as Moses was sent From God, so was Christ. But as we'll see later, not as a servant, but as the Son of God. One in nature, one in substance, equal with the Father. You see, John 5 um, mentions the the connection of, of Moses, but look at how Jesus was sent. John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I'm the great apostle. He sent me. We could go backwards in John, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's the apostle. What have we seen in Hebrews? If there's any place in the Bible to see how Christ is the high priest, it's in Hebrews. And that's what we concluded with last week. He is the great apostle. He is the great high priest priest. We keep going here and we see that Moses was unique, but Christ is greater. Consider Jesus, he's called and sanctified you. Consider Jesus, he's the great apostle and high priest. But thirdly, consider Jesus, he is greater than Moses. And what he does now in verse 2 down through verse 5 is he shows how Christ is greater than Moses. In verse 2, what do we read? We read in verse 2 who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 2 is interesting because he wants it to be understood that as the apostle and as the high priest of our confession, Christ was faithful, he was faithful. And to these Jews that had come out of Judaism and trusted Christ, he has nothing negative to say about Moses. Moses was a godly man used by God's grace. And Moses was a man who was faithful to God. He was faithful in God's house. In all of the ways we could look at in the Old Testament, Moses was a faithful man. But then he changes the tone and we see where he is going in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. What does the word glory mean? That's one of those church words sometimes we assume everybody knows. The word glory means estimation. It means praise. It means recognition. Think of it like that. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more recognition than Moses. He's been counted worthy of more praise than Moses. He's been counted worthy of more estimation than Moses. And now what he does is explain why. He explains why. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. The first way that he begins to show this here is that Moses is just part of the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. You see, when we think about the house, we're speaking about the people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God we call Israel. In the New Testament, the people of God we see as the church. And what we're seeing here is is that God used Moses. Moses is a great example to these suffering, persecuted Christians in, we think, Rome. We're guessing Rome, wherever they are. He's a great example of faithfulness, a great example of, like, following after God. But he's not greater than Christ. Because while Moses is part of the house, Jesus is the builder of the house. It's phenomenal what he does here because you can almost see him anticipating the objections to Christ. It's like when we were back looking at angels, it's as if someone said, but wait a minute, if Jesus is greater than the angels, then how did he become a man? Because humanity dies, angels don't die. And he goes through all of that thing about God's design. And he goes all through the the wonder and the miracle and the necessity of the death of Christ. And now it's as if he's thinking, wait a minute, these people are going to get hung up on Moses. And he says, look, Moses was faithful, but Moses was part of the house. He was part of the people of God, but Jesus was the builder of the house. He's the builder. He's greater than Moses. I like this. Um, Speaking of the house, one commentator, this is a term that is often used in reference to the nation Israel. Um, And and here, I think when he speaks about Moses as part of the house, he's part of the remnant and part of the people of God. And what does he go on to do here? He's showing them. He's saying, look, the builder of the house in verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Think about all the different ways that we see Christ deity just shine in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. We saw it back in chapter one, verse three and four. We saw it when the father speaks to the son, referring to him as theos or God. And now what do we see? We see another statement. The builder of all things is God. Now think back with me. What have we already seen? We've seen that Jesus is the builder of the house. The builder of all things is God. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is God. We've also seen that Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the architect. He's the builder. He's the one that puts it in motion. So what is he doing here? He's showing us the miracle and the wonder of who Jesus is. Moses is wonderful. He's faithful, but he's not Christ. Verse five, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Second of all, Moses was just a servant, but Jesus is the son. He's the son. And we've seen in Hebrews that it's not like we think of sonship. It's not the way you look at your son. To say you were the son of God was to say you were one And in nature, and one, in substance with God the Father. It's it's a claim to his deity. It's a claim to his unique preeminence. It's a claim to his unique authority. And what do we see here? I was reading uh, in a commentary about this years ago. My dad was out in Reno, not Reno, but Lake Tahoe, Nevada. I was 16 and I was with him, and there was a really neat Christian man named Jim Heaton And Jim loved my dad, and and he loved a preacher named Ray Stedman. Ray Stedman was an interesting fellow. He loved the Lord. He was from Palo Alto, California. And he was very vivid in his word pictures. And, And this one man quoted Ray's story. He said, Ray one time was talking about visiting a ranch in Montana. He knew the son of one of the ranch hands. When he visited, he was restricted from the main house. He rode all the old horses when he went horseback riding. But then one day he became friends with the owner's son. And that was a whole new deal. They had free run of the ranch and could go wherever they pleased. When they rode horses, they rode the best horses. And it goes on to say, that's the difference between a servant and a son. He's the son of God. Moses is a faithful servant. Moses is a wonderful man only by the grace of God. But Jesus Christ, the eternal one, he is the builder of the house. He's not only the builder of the house, he's not a servant in the house. He's over the house. He is the son. He's greater than the servant. It keeps going here. It mentions that he, I love this. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, And how was he faithful? What was the way he demonstrated his faithfulness? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Thirdly, in the contrast, Moses testified, Jesus fulfilled. Moses testified. You say, what's going on here? This gets exciting. I tell you, the, the wonder of Scripture and, and one of the unique ways, I, I love what uh, John Piper says in one of his books about Scripture. He speaks about the fact that it's not what makes the Scripture true, but if you get into the Word of God, you begin to understand the, the wonder of the Scripture. You begin to understand the unique ways the scriptures tie together. You begin to understand the arc of the scripture, all the different themes, all the different passages, all the different connections, and you begin to behold something and God allows you to see this is not of man, this is of God. And Moses was a part of this. He testified about that which would come later. Remember Jesus in John 5? For if you believe Moses you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I'm gonna tell you about a friend I met recently, a guy I bought a computer from of all things, a Jewish man, and we had many conversations about Christ. But he didn't believe Jesus, he believed Moses. But the problem is Moses spoke of Christ. Moses spoke of Jesus in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I pray the young people would get a vision of this. You see, Moses and the prophets is the Old Testament. They wrote about the things of God. But you, here's what's crazy when I was a child, when I was a teenager, I thought, you know, the Old Testament is a book of moral stories that are really helpful to help us to trust God. And then we have the New Testament. I didn't understand how it fit. But then I began to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me all the way from Genesis, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the Torah, and then into the prophets, we see God unfolding who he is. We see God testifying of what is to come. And here, the author of Hebrews wants it to be clear that he testified. He testified even in all that he did, in all the shadows he participated in, and not even understanding the full fulfillment. It was testifying. It was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to Christ. You see, Jesus was the builder, not part of the house. Jesus was the son, not a servant. Jesus was the fulfiller, not the testifier. Fourthly, this morning, consider Jesus. He's called and sanctified you. He's the great apostle and high priest. He's greater than Moses. Fourthly, he is our source and our strength. Now, as we leave this passage this morning, we come into a very important text. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. What is he saying here? What is happening? What is he doing here? When we look at this text, we have to keep in mind the nature of what's happening. You know, we've looked at this before when we talked about the warning passages. I want to read you what F.F. Bruce says here. It's really good. He says in verse six, nowhere in the New Testament more than here do we find such repeated insistence on the fact that continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. The doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints has as its corollary the salutary teaching that the saints are the people who persevere to the end. In the parable of the sower, the seed sown on rocky ground made a fair showing at first, but could not withstand the heat of the sun because it had no root And in the interpretation of the parable, this is said to refer to people who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I I can't say it any more uh, serious and any more in a warning way. Young people, if you make a profession of the faith and one day you go to college and you walk away from the faith, don't ever hold on to a profession of faith in Christ Jesus, because the reality of true saving faith is that the Holy Spirit of God will continue to carry you and make you endure. There's been a lot of people within the Bible belt that make claims like this. Well, That old boy, he hadn't followed Christ in 30 years. He's an agnostic. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but we're so thankful that he prayed a prayer at VBS and walked an aisle and was baptized. That has nothing to do with the New Testament understanding of the Christian life. The New Testament presents he who began a good work in you will complete it. The New Testament presents a view that we are literally predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son, which means that while I am prone to wonder, anybody else prone to wonder in here besides me? While I am prone to be hard-headed, while I am prone to be stubborn, the grace of God will not let me go. You see, the mark of those who are true to the faith is that God will show his faithfulness, enabling them to persevere, enabling them to turn their eyes back on Jesus, enabling them to be comforted, to be exhorted, to be enabled by considering Jesus. I pray today we would see this, and I want you to be comforted, because when we look at a passage like this, be reminded of other text because these passages are not in isolation. Some people say, well, this is proof you can lose your salvation. And I would beg to differ because here's why. Listen, look at first John chapter two, verse 19. They went out from us. John is dealing with people who left the faith. They did not endure. They did not make it to the end. But what is his explanation? But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. I want to remind you of something. Look at the very beginning of this chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. You know what the, the mark of holy brothers and those who share in a heavenly calling is? They make it to the end. They endure. They persevere. You may be thinking, well, I don't know. I I don't have that kind of power. I was looking at this, and and I was anticipating maybe that thought. I want want to encourage you. We look at a passage like this, and I want us to not lose sight of the context in verse 6. Look what he says. He you go back and you look, and at the in verse six he goes, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought about another passage. Another passage is First Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, now look at this, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you catch the language there? He says you yourselves Like living stones are being built up. Let me ask you the question are being built up by who? By God. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we are going to endure, what is it going to take? Is it going to take our faithfulness? We're in trouble if it's going to be up to me or you. But what do we need? How can we endure? How can we face this? I got good news this morning. Christ is the builder of the house and Christ is faithful over God's house. Wow, you mean that this means faithfulness means that Jesus is not only faithful to do what he's called to do, he's faithful to us. This morning, do you realize that God will use his word and the call to endure to encourage you along, but never for a moment think that your endurance is based on your faithfulness. It is completely based on the faithfulness of Christ. Amen? You see, this morning, you may be here, and, and one of the marks, isn't it unique how God works? You may be here, and you're wondering, you may be here and you're, in, you're considering everything but Christ. You're considering your job. You're considering success. You're considering sports. You're considering your goals. And you're not even living in reality of what God says is true. But uniquely, the Holy Spirit takes his word, stirs your heart, and calls you back to do what? Consider Christ. Consider Jesus consider Jesus. You say, how does that happen, Stephen? What is the explanation? The only explanation is that the builder of the house is faithful over the house. And the builder of the house enables his people to endure. He enables his people to go to the end. I'm telling you, without that, this would turn into nothing but legalism and moralism. It would turn into nothing, but you better try harder. You better be better. You better do more. You better be more obedient. And all of a sudden we come to a text in a letter where the greatness of Jesus is lifted high and high and high. And we're exhorted to put our eyes on the builder of the house who is faithful. Amen. So today, turn to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to him. How do people make it when they're suffering, when they're tempted, when they're vulnerable? They gaze upon Christ. They gaze upon the Lord. Wherever things at right now in your life, the Lord is using this text of his word to purify us. And he uses, remember he says that he not only sanctifies us, but we are the ones being sanctified And one of the ways that we're actually experiencing this this morning. One of the ways he sanctifies us. What did Jesus say in John 17? Sanctify them in truth for thy word is truth. And how does he sanctify us this morning? He stirs our hearts and he says, look, look to me, turn to me, gaze upon me, Get your eyes off of the world. Get your eyes off of the temporary. Get your eyes off of everything that doesn't matter and look to me and I'll give you strength and I'll give you grace to endure. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your truth. And I pray, oh God, that today we would be humbled. And Lord, I pray we'd be encouraged that the only way, that we can hold fast our confidence. The only way that we can hold fast and our boasting and our hope is through your grace, is through your power. And oh God, we, we need a great high priest. We need one who comes to do for us what we can't do. And that's exactly what we are meditating on in this incredible letter that you've given us. And so, Lord, I pray today that our attitude and our response to this text would be to be humbled, and it would be to worship you. Oh, Lord, thank you for how you you use your word to purify, to reprove us, to keep us moving down the right track. Oh, God, I pray today that There would be no one in this room outside of the faith. I pray, Lord, that if there are people that are here and they really are just following some religious system to try to earn their way to God, to give them some peace of mind, I pray today they would see what they are in need of is one who is supreme, one who is greater, one who can accomplish and take away the fear of death, one who can bring redemption, one who can provide forgiveness, a great high priest, the greatest high priest. I pray that their eyes would turn to you and they would trust in you. And again, Lord, I pray today all Christians here in this room would be reminded of the call to gaze upon you and consider you in everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.